0: Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, that is our prayer this morning, that it is only by your grace that you are our kind and faithful shepherd, and so, Lord, we pray now that as we come to your word that you would speak to us, you would, by your grace, feed us, your sheep. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And so we pray this morning that by your holy word this morning, you would, you would speak to us. We pray that Lord, you would teach us, that you would correct us, exhort us, train us, Lord, in righteousness. As we behold your glory this morning, as we cling to the truth of your word Help us to humble ourselves before your mighty hand. And we ask that Christ would be exalted here in our midst this morning. So open hearts and eyes this morning. I pray in a text like this one, perhaps there are some in this room who are still lost, who are still blind, and so we ask that you would do the miraculous sovereign work that only you can do, and you would open hearts and eyes to see and to believe this morning. So pour out your grace upon us now as we look into your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, First Timothy chapter one, if you have a Bible, let me ask you to turn there. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of First Timothy. We're looking this morning at verses 12 to 17, chapter 1. I told you this before, but I'll say it again, that I, I love reading good uh, Christian biographies from those in church history. Um, nothing really stirs my, my, my faith and my heart more than reading uh, of those who have gone before us. These weren't perfect men and women, but they were those whom God used in a mighty way to advance His, his kingdom. And so I would, I would encourage you, church, I would commend to you reading good Christian biographies, reading those like Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon and George Whitfield and George Mueller, Adoniram and Ann Judson, many many of those who've gone before us. Those are good for you. I would encourage you to do that. But one of my favorite stories is the story of John Newton. Many of you are probably familiar at least with the name John Newton, or at least familiar with his song, Amazing Grace, which by the way isn't my favorite Newton hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, that's my favorite. But anyways, Amazing Grace is probably the most famous Christian song ever written, but what you may or may not know about Newton is that prior to writing that hymn, in fact prior to his conversion to Christ, Newton lived a life of debauchery as an evil and wicked man. The story of John Newton is the story of a notoriously awful sinner who was saved and transformed by the awesome grace of God. Newton, in his early life, he was the captain of a slave ship, kidnapping men and women, treating them harshly, cruelly, enslaving them. But one night while at sea, In the midst of a storm, Newton, he was powerfully converted to Christ, and he went on to become a faithful, godly pastor and hymn writer, preached the gospel for for over 40 years. It's an incredible story, an amazing story, but what I love about that story is just before Newton's death, he had a friend that had come to visit him. Newton, by this time, he was blind, he could He could barely speak, his body had been ravaged by what was probably a series of strokes, but as his friend came in, Newton, he gathered himself enough to speak to his friend, and he said this to his friend, and I quote, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. John Newton had been captured by the amazing grace of God. And here in our text this morning, in verses 12 to 17, we read of another man who has been captured by grace. In fact, here we read this morning the, the story, the, really the, the personal testimony of the Apostle Paul, who also understood that he too was a great sinner, and that Christ was indeed a great Savior. In fact, these verses before us this morning, they are a celebration of grace. That's what we have here this morning. And and they really should be the living, breathing testimony of every single Christian. I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. But they are also, church, a reminder to us this morning that we should never cease to marvel at the amazing grace of God Because what we discover here is that Paul never got over grace. He never got over what it was that Christ had done for him. He was a man who had been gripped by grace. He'd been gripped by the fact that he was a great sinner and that Christ was indeed a great Savior. And he never got over it. And so I want to ask you this morning as we begin, when was the last time that you stood in awe of grace? For however long you've been a Christian, I don't care if it's five years or 50 years, when was the last time you stood in awe of grace? Have you grown in your amazement at the grace of God, or has it lost its wonder to you? And if you, like Paul, experienced it in this deeply, profoundly, personally real way, and this morning we discover Paul's absolute wonder at the grace of God in Christ. Let's see it together. If you have your Bibles there, would you mind please standing with me, if you're able, out of the honor of the reading of God's Word. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as a testimony, an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. You can be seated. I told you a few weeks ago that I, if I, we could summarize the main exhortation to Timothy in this letter, no doubt it would be found over in chapter 6 and verse 20. If you look there, where Paul says that to Timothy, he says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. In other words, guard the gospel, Timothy. Protect the gospel. And I said to you a few weeks ago, if you remember, that one of the ways in which we do that, one of the ways in which we guard the gospel is by keeping the gospel at the center. That the gospel must have central priority. It must have central focus in our church in, in all of our preaching and all of our teaching and life together. We can't get distracted. We can't allow other things to push the gospel out of the center. No, we must keep it central. But if I could just sort of peel back another layer here this morning in light of our text here. If I could, if I could just go one step further, one level deeper, deeper here, I would say that another way, or perhaps maybe a more foundational way in which we guard the gospel is not only by keeping it central, but we guard the gospel by treasuring the gospel. We guard the gospel by celebrating the gospel. Because listen, we will protect what it is we treasure most. We will guard what we treasure most. This is why you have locks on your doors at home. And you take out life insurance policies. And you, you, know, you research car safety ratings. Why? Because you'll protect what it is you value the most. And so the only way really that we're ever going to faithfully protect and guard the gospel is, church, if we truly treasure the gospel, if we've been amazed by it and gripped by it, then we will passionately guard it. If you remember, Paul, he's writing to Timothy, whom he's left in Ephesus in order to deal with this issue of false teaching in the church. Verses 3 to 11, look there, we saw Paul's description of what this false teaching was. And apparently, What we discover here is that these false teachers were espousing some form, some kind of a substitute gospel. It was based on law keeping. And by doing so, they were they were perverting, they were distorting the gospel of grace. Verse 8, notice they they weren't using the law lawfully. They were trying to use the law as a means of being justified or even being sanctified rather than allowing it to to drive them to Jesus for that. Verse 4, notice they were consumed with myths and endless genealogies which were promoting, he says, speculations about the law. But in verse 11, he says, notice there, that this false doctrine or this different doctrine, it wasn't according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. In other words, they had moved away from the gospel of grace and moved away from this inner transforming work of the heart and the conscience by the grace of God through faith in Christ. And now they are going to the law. They're going to externals. They're going to peripheral things. Verse 11, Paul says, this isn't the gospel I gave you, Timothy. No. And so... In verses 8 to 11, last week we saw Paul takes a slight detour here to reaffirm and reestablish and re explain the purpose of the law, why God gave it in the first place as a means of pointing us to Jesus. Not the law. No, it's incapable of making us righteous, it's incapable of sanctifying us because it doesn't touch the heart. But here now, look in verses 12 to 17. Paul takes what appears to be another detour. He's going to conclude his charge to Timothy, you'll see there in verses 18 and 20. But he takes another sort of brief aside here where he simply explodes now in the praise and worship here and thanksgiving. In fact, look there in verse 12. He begins with thanksgiving where he says, I thank him. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then he bookends that, notice, in verse 17 with this doxology, with this this worship here in verse 17. He says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then notice that sandwich there right in between that is the mercy and grace of God. And two things are absolutely clear. That God can save the absolute worst of sinners, and this salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In fact, notice how right there in the very center of this passage, look there in verse 15, Paul gives a one-sentence summary of what the gospel is. One commentator said, this is the gospel in miniature. What is the gospel? If you you had to communicate the gospel in one sentence, what would you say? Look at verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's the gospel. That's the sound doctrine. That's the deposit, church, that we must guard. Christ came into the world to save sinners. So instead of this being a detour here, From Paul's main argument, I believe it's central to Paul's response to these false teachers. Why? Because this is what the gospel is. It's a message of grace. And Paul holds himself up here as the testimony of that grace. Four things I want you to see. Four headings this morning. Number one, we're gonna look at the thankfulness for grace. Number two, we're going to look at the explanation of grace. Number three, we're going to look at the purpose of grace. And then number four, we're going to look at the celebration of grace. So the thankfulness, the explanation, the purpose, and the celebration. And I pray that it would lead us this morning too to worship and celebrate this grace as well. So first notice with me, if you will, the thankfulness for grace. The thankfulness for grace. Verses 12 to 14. Notice in verse 12 here how these opening words, they sort of serve as this banner that's just waving over the entire passage there. Verse 12, I thank Him. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. So notice he begins here with this this expression of gratitude, this expression of worship here. This is the declaration of a man who never got over what Christ had done for him. He'd never gotten accustomed to grace. He never got bored with grace. He never wanted to move on beyond the gospel. No, I thank him. Verse 12, notice, it is rather interesting where this explosion of praise appears in this letter. Because notice there, after all, the the entire first part of chapter 1 has all been about confronting false teachers, right? And, and it seems, though, no, in verse 11, after mentioning the glorious gospel of the blessed God, it's almost as if just the, the, the mention of this gospel, it just ignites something in the heart of Paul here. Sort of like when you're out somewhere and you hear that song, it just sends these memories flooding back to you from an earlier time, right? I love that about music. And it just it brings back to all these old memories and, and, and in a similar way, it's almost as if Paul, just upon mentioning the gospel of grace, he can't help himself, but he just breaks out in this exultation of praise for what Christ has done for him. Notice here, he gives three reasons why he's so thankful. Why is he so thankful for grace? First reason, number one, notice because Christ had called Him. Him. In other words, he saved and appointed Paul as an apostle. Look at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Just notice those personal pronouns. I, me, me, me. This is very personal for Paul. In other words, he is, he is reflecting here on his own personal testimony. He's reflecting here on his own conversion and calling to ministry. In fact, no doubt, he's, he's thinking back here to his own Damascus Road experience. In Acts chapter 9, you remember where he encounters the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and Christ calls him, and he saves him, and he converts him, and he, and he commissions him as an apostle. Verse 12 Christ had strengthened him for this task. He was was set apart by Jesus. He'd He'd been chosen by God. Not only chosen for salvation, elected unto salvation, but he was set apart as an apostle of Christ as well. And Christ had strengthened him, he says, for this very ministry. Verse 12, look there. He judged me faithful. What does Paul mean here? Judge me faithful. Well, it's very unlikely that Paul is saying that God knew Paul was a trustworthy guy. Right? Like, that's why he appointed me to ministry, because there was, God saw something in Paul. No. <laughs> no. The reason Christ judges him faithful, verse 12, is because Christ had strengthened him to be faithful. It's only, only to Christ. It's Christ who would strengthen him, Christ who would uphold him, Christ who would keep him, Christ who would empower him. It wasn't because Paul was a trustworthy guy, and yet Christ had treated him that way. He judged me faithful. Verse 12, look there again, appointing me to his service. The word there for service is the word from which we get the word deacon. In fact, really you could translate verse 12, he treated me trustworthy by putting me in ministry, by putting me in service to him. So the reason then that Christ had set him apart as an apostle wasn't because of anything in Paul. No, it was owing only to the sheer grace of God and Paul is amazed by this grace. Why? Because Paul had a past. That's the second reason. Notice there, verse 13. Paul is thanking God for this grace because of who he was. Look there again, verse 13. Christ had called him, though formerly, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. This is his former life. These, these, these were his pre-conversion days. Friend, can you think back to your pre-conversion days? Verse 13, this is who he was. This This is the before picture, right? You see the infomercials with the before and after picture. This is the before picture of Paul's life. And he uses there, notice those three words to describe himself. Look there again. He was a blasphemer, meaning he spoke evil of Christ. He was a persecutor. He sought to kill and destroy followers of Christ. He was an insolent opponent of Christ. This is perhaps the strongest even of those three terms, speaking here of his utter moral wickedness and what he did. This is who Paul was when Jesus called him and saved him. In fact, let's just, let's just see if we can't get a little of the backstory story here, shall we? Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter seven for a moment. I want you to see it. Acts chapter seven will be up there on the screen for you as well. This is the stoning of Stephen. And notice what we discover here about this Saul, this Pharisee persecutor of the church. In Acts chapter seven, after Stephen's incredible sermon that cost him his life, if you remember. Chapter 7, verse 54, Stephen, he gets right into the face of his Jewish persecutors, his Jewish audience there. And look what he says in Acts 7, 54. It says about their response. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So Stephen, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him, and then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments, notice this, at the feet of a young man named Saul. He's right there. In fact, look there in chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. He's approving of it. Murder. Chapter 8, verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committed them to prison. Chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's present there. He's approving, dragging, ravaging. This is Paul. Later in Acts chapter 22, turn there. After Paul is arrested in Asia, he's giving his testimony, which he loves to do. You can find it in several places in Acts and other epistles of his. Acts chapter 22 and verse 3, look what he says there. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way, that's what Christianity was called, the way. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering the prison, both men and women. He's persecuting, he's binding, he's delivering Acts chapter 26, look there, standing before King Agrippa, describing what his life was like before he met Christ. Acts 26 verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Friends, this was Paul. This is the guy who wrote this letter. This is the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. So consider this. At one time, Paul was a cold-hearted, brutal, zealous murderer. He was a violent, bloody man. In fact, when you think of Paul, think of a terrorist. Whatever you think of Bin Laden or Putin, this is Paul. Think of the Nazi secret police dragging, screaming men and women from their homes. Paul. He hated Christ. He cursed Christ. He insulted and blasphemed and insulted the name of Christ in bitter hatred and resolve. We must ask, what changed? What changed for him? Here's the third reason he's thankful. Look there again, chapter 1. Paul is thankful for grace because in his blindness, And ignorance he was shown mercy in his blindness and ignorance he was shown mercy look there again verse 13 but but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus so what changed Paul I'll tell you what changed look in verse 13 I received mercy. God has shown him mercy. Here's how Luke describes it in chapter 9 of Acts, verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, Paul did, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so notice here, Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't searching for Jesus. He wasn't a seeker. He wasn't open to a gospel conversation like your neighbor might be. No. But he had encountered the sovereign grace of God and he received mercy and the saving grace of God. It rushed upon his dead, cold, blind heart and he was overwhelmed like a tsunami of grace, he says. And it transformed him in an instant from this insolent opponent, notice, to this appointed servant. and It was owing only to grace and mercy. In fact, look there, verse 13. I received mercy because, notice why, I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. What's Paul saying there? Well, he isn't saying, I, I was ignorant and therefore I was innocent. It earned me mercy. That he wasn't guilty or culpable. No, no. Rather, here's what he's saying. He's saying, I was sincere, but I was sincerely wrong. I didn't understand. I, I was ignorant in unbelief. In other words, I was blind was blind. I was lost. I had a zeal, but it wasn't according to knowledge. I didn't understand the full implications of what I was doing. No. But then, suddenly, the lights came on. He was blind, but he saw. And God saved him. Grace and mercy. Back to verse 14. Look there. Notice how God saved him, verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, and then notice this next phrase, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You see what Paul is saying there? In other words, he's saying that before grace broke upon his dead, cold heart, he had no faith. He had no love. But by the sheer grace of God, In his great mercy, he had granted to Paul the gift of faith and the gift of love in Christ Jesus. Beloved, faith and love are gracious, sovereign gifts of God. Gordon Fee, he says it like this. He says, for Paul, God is always the prior action. Faith is a response to grace. In other words, so even the faith to believe in Christ, and the ability to love God, Paul says, it came to me as a gift overflowing from grace. That's incredible. Beloved, the same is true for you and I. We were not searching for Jesus. No. He found us. We we were just as blind. We were just as lost as Paul. And your salvation, my salvation, is owing only to the grace of God, nothing in ourselves, overflowing grace from Christ. Let me ask you, can you think back, can you, can you think back to your pre-conversion days? Perhaps some of you can. Maybe some of you can remember the time, the location. You remember the circumstances surrounding it. Maybe perhaps your life was like Paul's. You were a blasphemer. You were, a, you were an opponent to the gospel. But some of you, I'm going to say probably can't remember that. Which is okay. Maybe you were maybe you were too young. Maybe there was you can't ever remember a time in your life where you didn't believe in Jesus. But listen to me. No matter who you are, no matter what your testimony is or what your conversion experience was like, you were just as blind, you were just as dead, you were just as much an enemy of God, you were just as much an object of his wrath as Paul. This is your testimony as well. The saving grace of Christ overflowed into your life. Are you thankful for grace this morning? Because then notice in verse 15, Paul turns now to explain and unpack what this grace is that changed him. What was was the cause of this change in Paul? What moved him from an insolent opponent to an appointed servant? The answer is easy. It was the gospel. It was the gospel. Second, notice the explanation of grace. The explanation of grace. Look there, verse 15. Paul, notice he begins now to unpack what this grace is. He begins to explain grace. And notice that his explanation, it is it is brief, it is concise, it it is to the point, It it is one single statement, but it is very, very clear. Here it is. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. You want to know what the gospel is? Here it is. Verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, why would Paul, do you think, feel the need to explain here what the gospel is? Why does he need to state it so plainly for Timothy or for the Ephesian believers or for us? Why would he do that? Well, remember, it's because the gospel is in jeopardy here. These false teachers are twisting and distorting what the gospel is. And and they're getting it all wrong. They're going to the law. It's about what you do. It's about what you don't do. It's about your obedience, your good works, your acts of righteousness. And Paul said, you've gotten it all wrong. That's not the gospel. Beloved, it's a reminder to us of just how easy it is to twist and distort the gospel. By doing so, you ruin it. You, you gut it of grace. You turn it into something moral. You turn it into something social. You turn it into something political. Paul says, no, that's, that's not it. This is it. This is what matters. And notice several things here he reminds us about the gospel. Notice his explanation of it, his unpacking of this grace. Notice first, number one, he says the gospel is Trustworthy. The gospel is worthy of our trust. Look there, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You could translate this: faithful is the word. The word there, of course, being the the gospel message faithfully handed down by the apostles. Saying is trustworthy. Now, this is this is the first of five trustworthy sayings from Paul in the pastoral epistles. Five of them, you'll see. You see three here in 1 Timothy, one in 2 Timothy, one in Titus. Saying is trustworthy. Now, some, they, they want to suggest that this is owing to some kind of early church creed or this is some sort of confessional statement that they would have, they would have known very well, some sort of hymn that was circulating in the early church. And, and that, may, that may very well be. But nevertheless, here's what Paul is doing. Paul is he is grabbing our attention here, and he is, he's saying to Timothy, and he's saying to us, he's saying, Timothy, let me state this as plainly and as simply as I know how. Let, let me tell you, Timothy, where you can put your confidence in the face of all this false teaching and all these speculative myths and genealogies and empty talk. Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to rest on. Here's what has to be the main priority, Timothy, and I'm going to tell you something that is true and trustworthy, historical, reliable. The gospel is trustworthy. But that's not all. Notice the gospel is universal. Universal. In other words, it is a message that must be received and accepted by all. Look at verse 15, that second phrase there. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Full acceptance, all acceptance, meaning it's a universal statement that has to be accepted by all. The offer of the gospel is made to all and it is for all because there is no other gospel that saves than this one. Look over in chapter 2 verse 3, he'll say the same thing. Chapter 2, verse 3, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men, all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The gospel is universally exclusive. How's that? Universally exclusive. And therefore, it is deserving of your full acceptance, Timothy. Here's the third thing he says about the gospel. Notice the gospel is about Christ. It's about Christ. Look at verse 15. What what is the trustworthy saying? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's the gospel in nine words. It's amazing to me. You, You can go up to many... People today, let me, let me challenge you to do this. Many people today, even many so-called Christians, and you could ask them, what is the gospel? Blank stares. This is it. It's crystal clear. Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners. Just notice here what is packed and squeezed into that one phrase. My, my family is getting to the size now where we can't all, when we go on a trip, pack into one suitcase. Right? So we, we're trying, we're squeeze everything we possibly can into one suitcase, you know, and then you get there and you open it, it just explodes. That's it. This one statement just poof. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world. That's incarnation. The Son, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but He humbled Himself as the God-man, Jesus. He came in. He came in flesh. He entered in, get that, implying pre-existence. He was uncreated. He came in. He lived a human life. He obeyed perfectly where we failed why verse 15 to save sinners implying what implying atonement implying propitiation implying substitution that's the very essence of the gospel to give his life as a ransom to pay our sin debt to bear the wrath of god where the law only condemned us notice christ came in to free us from that condemnation christ came in to the world To save sinners. So just notice, beloved, here in this one powerful sentence is implied sovereign grace, incarnation, atonement, the debt erasing, wrath removing, sin absorbing, justice accomplishing, righteousness fulfilling death of Christ who came into the world to save sinners. One statement. That's incredible. The gospel is about Jesus. Here's the fourth thing the gospel is. The gospel also must be personal. In other words, this cannot simply be a fact you know. No, it must be the personal truth upon which you rest. Look at verse 15 again. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. That was the title of John Bunyan's own autobiography taken from this verse. Chief of sinners. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. (laughs) I'm not even on the B team. Ephesians 3, 8, I am the very least of all the saints. I am the foremost. I am the chief. Now, what could Paul mean by that? Does he mean... That he went around the world, investigating the sins of every other person on the planet, carefully inspecting, carefully comparing his sins to their sins, and then he concludes, okay, I'm the worst one of all. Is that what he means? I can't be what he means. So what does he mean? Here's what he means. That Paul was so convicted by his own personal sinning. I mean, I think he saw the, the faces of those he'd murdered. He was so convicted by his own personal sin, he was so vividly aware of his own sin against God. He wasn't comparing himself horizontally to other people. He was comparing himself vertically to the holy God, and he was so vividly aware of his own sin against God that he couldn't even conceive of anyone else's sins being worse than his own. No. He'd been... Deeply, personally affected by his own sin. In fact, look in verse 15. He doesn't say, I was the foremost. What does he say? I am the foremost. There's no moral superiority in Paul. None. And Friends, this must be the language of every sinner. I am the foremost. I am. And the chief of sinners. This must be the personal realization of anyone who's going to be saved. Do you recognize your own sin against a holy God? Have you been been personally broken over your own sinning? Because if so, this is who Jesus came to save. He came into the world to save sinners. Are you a sinner? Listen, verse 15, notice, gives the only qualification needed to be saved. You've got to be a sinner. <laughs> Luke 5, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come not to call the righteous but sinners. Sinners, my friend, the only thing that you can contribute to your salvation is the sin from which you've got to be saved. Is that you? Do you you understand that you're sick? Do you understand that you are a sinner? And if that's you this morning, perhaps for the first time, I would encourage you Turn from your sin, recognizing it before a holy God. Turn from your sin and put your trust in Christ alone. His finished work is the only thing that can save you from your sins. Perhaps some of you would say, but pastor, you don't know what I've done. And that's where Paul turns next in verse 16. Here's the assurance Here's the confidence that no matter what sin you have done, God's grace is greater still. Third, the purpose of grace. Look at verse 16. The purpose of grace. Notice in verse 16, Paul tells us now the purpose of God's mercy in his life. He tells us why God saved him. Why did God save Paul? And the answer he gives is that God did so, so that Paul's life, Paul's testimony, could be an example to all that God can save the worst of sinners. That no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, you are never beyond the saving grace and power of God. That's the purpose of grace. Look there, verse 16, but I received mercy for this Reason. So here it is that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for e- eternal life. You see what Paul's saying there? In other words, he's saying, if God can save me, he can save anybody. Anybody. In fact, this is. Precisely why God saved him. So that generation after generation after generation could look at the example of Paul and God's patience with Paul, and they could say that God's grace, if it's big enough to save Paul, is big enough to save me and it's big enough to save anybody. So Paul's meant to serve as this example, this prototype, this case study of the sufficiency of God's grace, the power of the gospel. So that it would magnify the glory of God's grace and mercy. God was so patient with Paul. Has God been patient with you? You know know how to battle impatience? As if I'm the expert here. No. You know how to battle impatience? You work the patience of Jesus into your heart. That'll make you patient. Aren't you glad he's been patient with you? Unbeliever, God is showing you patience right now. That, that breath you just took right there is the patience of God. You being here this morning to hear this sermon, the patience of God in your life. Turn to him now and you can be another trophy of his grace. This is the purpose of grace. And so, before we move just to that final point here, I just want to stop and make a few points of application. I mean, the first one, of course, I would say would be to you, unbeliever. This is your opportunity to respond to the gospel this morning. What are you waiting for? This is the opportunity to respond now. The patience of God, you hearing this sermon today. Here's the first application, though. If we are going to follow Jesus... Then we must go where Jesus goes. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to go where Jesus goes. Where does Jesus go? To sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to call the unrighteous. There's a reason Jesus is called the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because he hung out with them. And so, listen, if your gospel leads you away from sinners, if it leads you away from the unrighteous rather than toward them, if it causes you to retreat from the world, it's not the gospel of grace. No. And so, if we're going to follow Jesus, we got to go. We got to go around the world to those who are hostile to this gospel message, just like Paul. We got to go across the street to the guy. Whose yard is littered with beer cans and used syringes. Got to go across the tracks. That's where Jesus went. He went to sinners. Brothers and sisters, this is who the gospel's for, so we got to go. Here's the second application believe that God can save the worst of sinners. Do you have that kind of confidence in the power of the gospel? That if the gospel has, is powerful enough to reach anyone, if, if it can radically convert Paul, this bloodthirsty terrorist, then it can save your uncle or your sister or your wayward child who's hardened to the gospel. Amen? The question is, will you be faithful to continue to share it? The question is, will you put your confidence in its power to save Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1 about the gospel message, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That's the average person on the street. This message of Christ coming into the world to save sinners, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So do you believe in the power of the gospel to save the worst, absolute worst of sinners? Here's the third application. Brother or sister, let me speak to you in the room who is ashamed of your past. God can sovereignly use your unredeemed past to magnify the glory of his grace. No matter what you have done, God can use you still. Like Paul. He can use your past. He can use your testimony. He can use the road you've walked on and hold you up as a trophy of his grace. Listen, nothing, nothing is wasted with my God. Nothing is wasted. Paul, Paul gets this as he's thinking about the gospel. He recognizes that even the most painful past, even the most shameful days of his past that he wishes he could erase, he wishes he could delete. Even those days, God can use them as an example. He can use them as a testimony of the patience of His grace in the lives of other people, that God saves sinners and He saves all kinds of sinners. Nothing is wasted. In fact, in verse 16, to those who were to believe, do you see what he's saying there? That God can use your testimony as a means of bringing the unconverted to Christ. whom He's already elected to save. And all of this contemplation of grace, patience of God, the gospel, it, notice it produces something in Paul. It leads, a, it leads him to respond in a certain way. Look at verse 17. What is, what is his response? Well, notice fourth, finally, the celebration of grace. What's his response? It's, it's worship. Look at verse 17. Notice here, how Paul, after expressing his thankfulness for grace, explaining grace, showing the purpose of grace, he just erupts in this celebration of grace. Doxology. Worship. Verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So verse 17, as he... Notice, reflects on who he was. and What God has made him to be is it reflects on the fact that he is a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. His heart is stirred and it just spills over into praise. Do you see that? Oh, church, we should be a people who every week as we, as we hear the gospel and as we proclaim the gospel and we preach the gospel, that we would just erupt in this celebration of praise for the grace of God. Notice that phrase, verse 17. The king of ages... Who's that? It's Jesus. It's Jesus who gave him the strength in verse 12 and appointed him. It's Jesus whom this grace has overflowed into his life. It's Jesus who came into the world. It's Jesus who displayed his perfect patience. He's the king of ages. The sovereign ruler of heaven and earth from whom and to whom are all things. And in verse 17, look there, he just piles on the praise with this triplet of attributes. Do you see that? The king of ages, or maybe yours says eternal, immortal, invisible. It's actually poetic here. This is amazing. You can't see it in English. In Greek, it's an acronym. Each of those three words beginning with an alpha. The first letter of the Greek alphabet. He's poetic here and is spilling over of praise and grace. The king of ages, eternal, immortal, incorruptible the undying one who died to rise and never die again the invisible Christ himself who makes the invisible God visible verse 17 the only God how's that for political correctness there is only one God he is God alone there is no other the one to whom all must bow verse 17 be honor and glory Forever and ever. Amen. So he ends, notice, right where he began in verse 12. This thankfulness, this celebration of grace. Glory be to God for this salvation. Oh, may we never, church, get tired of hearing it. May we never become accustomed to grace. That Christ came into the world to save sinners. So let me ask you this morning. Are you convinced of two things? That I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we say it again. We are thankful for grace. Thank you that you would show your mercy to undeserving sinners like Paul, undeserving sinners like us. May we never grow tired of hearing of this grace. May we guard the gospel by treasuring the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard for more information about our church visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706 and thank you for listening